Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. The Great Resignation. That is what they're talking about right now. People leaving their companies en masse. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you could be a leader who creates an organization? People never want to leave. Today's guest, Clint Pulver, talks about how we can do that in his book, I Love It Here. I hope you take away some of the same lessons that I did from this one. Enjoy. Clint, welcome to the Pursuit of Learning. I'd love to start with you this morning on what is motivating you in life right now And what are two or three things you want to get across to our listeners in this conversation today? I think, you know, this this will be a little bit of a different podcast uh, for me today. We just uh, lost a little baby not long ago. So what's motivating me right now is to just keep pushing forward and to get back into the groove of things. I think life can change very quickly. And how do you handle the disruption of, uh, you know, whether it's chaos or tragedy or frustration or heartache, or when you have plans and things don't go as expected, how do you still stay motivated in that time? So uh, that's definitely a big focus for me right now. And how has that process been for you, Clint, in terms of being able to stay motivated and work through your grief? Yeah, I think one of the big things is, is the power of it support system, just great friends, great colleagues, good uh, family members, an infrastructure of people that can lift and support and help you in in times where you don't want to help yourself or it's difficult to help yourself or you feel no motivation. (laughs) So having those other people that can help you uh, to see that, I've always believed that you find purpose through the association and connection with other purposeful people. If you put a hard to catch horse in a field with an easy to catch horse, you usually end up with two hard to catch horses. If you put a sick child in the room with a healthy child, you usually end up with two sick children. And so the association of who you surround yourself with, it matters significantly. And I found that purpose and that motivation through the association of other motivated and purposeful people. And so continuing to try to get yourself back into the groove and having those conversations and doing the work that you do allows you to get your energy at some point back to where it normally is, Clint? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I I think, I mean, this is the first podcast uh, that I've jumped back on uh, since we lost our boy. And yeah, so it's just little steps, right? Little by little, it makes a little a lot. And uh, here's for, uh, you know, here's something for the first step. So here we are. Yeah. And and those are two of the key points that you bring up in the last chapter. And normally I work my way through the book with our guests, but you know, no better place to start the conversation. We're talking about Clint's book. I love it here. How great leaders create organizations. Their people never want to leave. And and one of the things you talk about is at some point, our colleagues are going to come to us and they're going to have crises in their lives. At some point, we as a company are going to have 
a crisis, either in the company or in society, which we've been living through for the last two years now. And so, Clint, when your employee comes to you and they've been presented with a challenge in their life, like you have right now, what do you, what do we say to them? How do we deal with that? How do we have that conversation? Because they're going to need time. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for the beauty of standing in the tension, to just sit in the tension and to listen and to empathize, not try to fix. I think there's a lot of times that that's what we try to do. We try to provide hope. We try to provide counsel. We, we, we try to provide resources. But most of the time, I think genuinely, and like you said, this is my experience as of late, like most people know what they need to do to fix themselves. They know what they need to do to get better. They know what they need to do to move forward. And if they don't, usually they'll tell you that or they'll ask for help because they legitimately don't know. So I found that the best thing and what I've seen other great leaders do is the ability to just sit, sit in the tension, listen, be the listening ear. So much of the leader's job is to just listen. And I found that even in this current situation, people that have just done that, they've been willing to just sit in in the grief, sit in the heartache, sit in the frustration. And there's been power in that. That's a beautiful way to do it is to sit in the tension. Thank you for sharing that. So if we go back in time, People are wondering, I love it here. Where did the concept come from? And for you, it all started in a sporting goods store, Yeah. right? You were, you were observing a leader of an organization, and then you were having conversations with the people that worked for him, and they were quite different than what you got when you talked to him directly. Do you want to share with our listeners what that was and what it led to? Totally. So I was a part of a mastermind group in New York City, and we were meeting with other CEOs and business leaders in the hustle and bustle of you know Manhattan, a thriving, crazy business, just centerpiece of the world, right? It, it's it was fun to meet with different individuals, and one of the the guys that we met with owned the sporting goods store, and he just ranted and raved about how awesome his business was when it came to the world of adaptation and how to thrive with the times. And I, I said, okay, that, that's awesome. I, I get it. You got to adapt or you're going to die. And then I said, what about your management style? What about how you relate to people and connect with you know, your, your staff, your employees? And he said, nah, no, no, no need to change. He goes, I, I treat them the same way I treated them 20 years ago. And we get results. And he said it in this thick New York accent. And I was like, wow. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> It was so funny, the contrast, because here's this guy that felt the need to change how he did business to adapt to a market that's always changing, right? The marketplace is always changing. But when it came to people, uh, there's no need to change. <laughs> and I remember I looked around in this store and all of his employees were my age or younger. So I'm a millennial, so they're millennial, Gen Z. And I, I just said, hmm, I wonder if they would say the same thing. I wonder if they would have that same perception. So thanked him for his time. I just, I had 45 minutes to kill until we needed to be to the next place. I had nothing else better to do. So I walked up to the first employee that I saw and I just said, hey, uh, I'm just curious, what's it like to work here? And the employee got quiet. I started to look around. It felt like an illegal drug exchange. <laughs> and he said, dude, I, I can't stand it here. He's like, it's just a job. I'm so frustrated. I, I'm not happy here. I don't even think my manager knows my name. I just, I don't know. It's just a job, man. Like, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> and I asked, well, then why are you still working here? And he said, oh, I've already applied to three other places. As soon as I get a, a chance to go to another job, I'm out. And then I went to another employee and another and another. Long story short, 
in the 45 minutes that I had, I interviewed six of his team members, five out of the six of his employees in that 45 minute span of me interviewing them said they would not be working for this guy in his store in less than three and a half months. And that was the moment where the light bulb went on for me, where I realized and saw firsthand that the perception of leadership versus the reality of the employee experience is usually night and day different because there's no incentive for an employee to really speak their truth to the leader. Most leaders have no idea when they're doing poorly. Just like this gentleman, he, a fine guy, great person, his management was, was struggling. He had no clue. And I realized that because of my age, and I, I put on a, a hoodie, a backwards hat, I was just in regular street clothes. And I created an environment where employees could speak their truth. They were honest with me. And I thought, man, what if we could share this? What if we could do this more? I would love to know what people are really thinking. And I, and I found earlier on, as I started this endeavor, that the magic was really when, not when people were dissatisfied with their job. The coolest part was when I would go up and people would say, I love it here. <laughs> I love my job. I love what I do. And then to find out the reasons why, that was more inspiring to me and led to a movement that I've been a part of and, and heading up for the last five and a half years. And so coming out of that, the idea for Undercover Millennial was born. Can you share with our listeners what Undercover Millennial is? And then we'll dive into what you just said, because obviously that's the key. We want to understand what we're doing wrong so we can fix it. But more importantly, we want to understand what makes those organizations great where people want to stay where people want to be forever, because then we can change our leadership. Well, I hope we can change our leadership styles to adopt some of those behaviors and not take on the, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing for 20 years. Yeah. Which happens so much. That happens so much. I have seen so many leaders that are like, nah, what I've always done is what I've always done. And that's the way I'm always going to do it. And now those businesses are struggling. You know, you can have that mentality if you want to be a solo entrepreneur, or you can have that mentality if you're okay with the revolving door of turnover that is costing your organization thousands of dollars when people leave. So the Undercover Millennial Program was a unique thing because it's never been done before. The book itself was a book not so much written by a leadership expert. The book was written by 10,000 employees who knew when their leaders were getting it right. The Undercover Millennial Program was simply me and other millennials, but the majority of the book was written through my work and research. We had different projects where I, I needed female millennials. I needed even younger millennials than me. I needed more people to help. But vastly, the majority of it was myself going in as a millennial, undercover, into organizations as someone who was looking for a job. So I'd walk up in, you know, to a, to a grocery store, a retail chain, a hospitality chain, a, a food and beverage outlet, whoever would work and partner with us. And I'd go in and I'd talk to the first person that I saw and I'd say, hey, I'm just looking for work. I'm looking for a job. And again, backwards hat, hoodie, just someone off the street and saying, hey, I just, you know, would you recommend it? I just, I'm just trying to ask a few people in the business what they would say. And then they would tell me everything everything. <laughs> Good, the bad, what they hated, what they loved. And it was so neat to see how just simply in that moment, we could create an environment where people were so authentic and real. And I, again, I think we've captured the most real and authentic data that's ever been done on employee retention and how those great leaders were creating loyalty that lasted. And one of the observations you had was that 60% of people you had conversations with we're looking to leave the place they were at. And 
the other observation was it's never been easier to lead. So what were you seeing from that? And what does it mean for people that aren't paying attention to what we talk about today? Yeah, you could literally throw a rock right now and hit a business that is looking for employees (laughs) right now. (laughs) We've gone through a crazy time right now with COVID-19 where the world has been disrupted and changed massively. We've done research during COVID-19 and it's really cool. We found that for the most part, employees have two things on their minds. Number one, they remember how they were treated during the the pandemic. They remember what their bosses did. They remember what leaders did. I saw some pretty horrific things that leaders did. I also saw some really beautiful things that leaders did. The point is they remember. And number two, all employees right now have had time to think. Mm. This really where I want to be. Is this really what I want to do? The routine of work has been disrupted most jobs today look different than they did in 2019. And that's a question they're asking. Do I want to be here? Do I want to work in a virtual environment? Do I want, you know, everybody's been laid off or we lost half of our employees at the beginning or people have moved on. And now for the first time, employees are really asking themselves and thinking, my goodness, I can live in Colorado and work in New York City and make twice as much, work three days a week whenever I want to. Like that, that's a reality for many jobs that are in this virtual work from home space. Most, a lot of companies are, are moving from uh, an, an internal office to everybody's at home. It's just, it's different. And people have options and employers are looking for people and they're willing to give them more. Whether that's pay, lifestyle, benefits, features, flexibility, better compensation, all those things. And now employers are waking up saying, okay, we've got to, we've got to do something because we're losing people or even worse, people are mentally checking out and they're staying. So how do we fix it? <laughs> the, the scary part is they may notice the second one less than they do the first one, totally. but it's probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's probably worse for you to have too many people staying, but checking out as opposed to leaving. And then you have to plug the holes. You're exactly right. And we're seeing that now more and more, even from that work from home environment. We've got a lot of employees on the payroll, but it's just hard to engage. It's hard to connect. There's only so many Zoom calls you can do in a day and the Zoom fatigue is real. And I don't know. And, and we're coming into another dynamic now with the new variant that, that's kicking us back to almost what we saw in 2020. And it's just, a, it's a unique time, but it's also been a very inspiring time to see what great leaders are doing during the chaos. To retain, mm-hmm. there are businesses and organizations right now that are thriving with employee yeah. management and employee workforce engagement. Like they're, they're killing it. And then there's organizations that are just barely hanging on. And it's been really interesting to see the difference between the two. And so there's two statements that you use early in the book that I found very powerful. One is something I've tried to live by for most of my time as a leader and results, you know, the downside is you take things really personally when they when someone does leave and that's employees don't quit companies, they quit bosses. And the second is, are you the problem or the solution? What do those two statements mean to you? And, and how much of what you write is trying to show someone how to be the solution instead of the problem? Yeah, well, hands down, leadership is the number one reason why people stay. It's the number one reason why people go. When, when I would ask somebody, why do you stay here? Or what makes it so significant? Or what makes it so dissatisfying? When, when a person hated their job, they always talked about a manager. When a person loved their job, they talked about this unique dynamic of a mentor. Mentorship versus leadership. Mentorship versus management. And I think it's really important to kind of 
decipher this for a minute because usually in the past, you know, 10 years of leadership development, we talk about two things. We talk about leadership or we talk about management. But in my research, I found this unique middle ground of mentorship. When people talked about the significance of leadership, not just the success of it, they always identified this mentor of sorts, not a leader per se, in the traditional view of leadership, but not a manager. If if we look at the definition of a traditional leader, like people might be asking, well, what does that mean? A traditional leader or traditional definition of leadership is someone who stands at the front of the ship and you're the visionary. You cast the vision. This is where we're going. This is what we want to do. This is the mission statement for the company. You got to get from point A to point B to point C. And you're a leader if people follow you. How do we get the organization to accomplish the overarching goal? That would be a view of traditional leadership. You're leading people to a common goal or objective. Management is about making sure that there's no holes in the ship, right? How do we get there efficiently, effectively, faster? But mentorship was about taking care of the individuals on the ship. Mentorship through the lens of the employee was the most significant thing that they talked about. It was the significant thing they worked for. It's what increased loyalty, empowered people. It it was the thing that they remembered because mentorship has to be earned. You could not become a mentor until that mentee invited you into their heart. And when a leader or a manager gained the role of mentor in the lives of their employees, that's what people stayed for. That's what people treasured. That's what people talked about. And it was interesting to see, okay, well, what is that? What makes a mentor a mentor? And that's where we came up, we wrote about in the book, the, the, the five C's of mentorship, five characteristics that if somebody earned that title, they truly became legendary. And every great story has one. You know, R- Rocky had Mick, <laughs> Simba yeah. had Mufasa, Aladdin had the genie. I mean, we can go on and on about all these great mentors, but that was the crux. That was the, the hook of, man, if you can achieve that, your success rate increases significantly. And you did notice, and you do write about the fact that a lot of great mentor leaders had their own coaches, sometimes multiple coaches, their own personal board of directors, you called it. Why is that, Clint? And how can we build that in our own lives outside of the workplace as individuals and then as leaders to become better leaders? And then can we go back to... Well, let's dive into that first, and then we'll come back to some of the traits and aspects that make a great, I believe the term you use in the book is a mentor manager, that make a mentor manager. We have the five C's, and then what is it outside of the five C's that really make that? And we can dive through some of the things you learn. Yeah, great. So every great mentor was always being mentored. When I would go into a workplace and I'd say, hey, why do you work here? And the employees would say, I I work here because of Susie. Like, oh man, our manager, Susie, come here. You got to meet Susie. All right. Who's Susie? And then I'd go to the next employee. Why do you work here? Ah, Susie. She worked at another place. She came over here. I followed her over. Who's Susie? Why was Susie so? Susie was always being mentored by another Susie of sorts. She had somebody influential and somebody inspiring in her life that she learned from, that she gained those traits from, right? When I talk about purposeful people and the association of that will allow us to become more purposeful ourselves. Same concept is true when it comes to good management. My dad, Clint, was my wrestling coach. I I grew up wrestling at Wasatch High School. Like they bred wrestlers at Wasatch High School. And every Friday night, I would watch uh, Kel Sanderson just throw guys around on the mat like ragdolls. He's literally the world's greatest wrestler. If anybody's like a collegiate wrestler or wrestled in high school, you, you know who Kel Sanderson is. He never lost a wrestling match in high school. Never lost. He never lost a wrestling match in college. 
he went on to win a gold medal at the Olympics, just an iconic person. And I remember my dad being my coach one Friday night. I just said, dad, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. We go every Friday night. I don't want to go. It's date night. I want to go hang out with my friends. I want to go do something else. And my dad looked at me and said, that's fine. He said, I just, I need to know. He said, do you want to be a great wrestler? And I said, yeah. I said, of course, dad. He goes, then you got to hang out by the mat. You got to hang out by the mat. He said, it's the only way that you're going to become great. You hang out by that mat. And it, and it was that moment that principle always stuck with me, right? If you want to get good at basketball, then hang out by the hoop. Same thing in mentorship, right? Who are you mentoring with? Who are you associating with? I've seen so many great young leaders get promoted into management and then they hang out in the management lounge or they go to a management conference with other toxic, burnt out, tired managers that hate their job, that hate leading, that are frustrated with people. They're the individuals that always see the problem. And then before you know it, you've got another problem manager, that toxicity, red toxicity. But I've also seen the flip side. When you get a young manager that's been promoted and they get associated with another great mentor manager that loves what they do, the legend, the, 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 the person that has really found significance, the true mentor in the organization. And it is everything. It can change everything. And so I talk about the five C's of mentorship. I think it's important for us as leaders to look for these five C's of mentorship in who we seek as mentors. The, I'll just list them off. The first C is yeah, confidence. Uh, second C is credibility. Third C is competence. The fourth C is candor. And the fifth C is the ability to just care about people. So the people that you're mentoring with, are they confident? Are they someone that exudes trust? Are they someone that they believe in themselves? They also believe in the process and that they can get you to where you want to go. Credibility, what's their background? What's their resume? How long have they been doing this for? How many other people have they coached? How long have they been uh, in, in the job or how long, you know, what makes them the authority figure to be a mentor for you? Yeah. Can they walk the walk? Totally. And then the other piece though is, is being competent. Are they a practitioner, not just a theorist? The credibility piece mm. is more like the resume. What's your history? But, but true mentorship, the most effective side of mentorship would be having a coach that could actually go out on the basketball court and shoot a hoop. Like I'm a, I'm a professional drummer. I want to mentor with someone who's actually gigging on the weekends. They can play. They, they know about music theory, but they can actually apply it. There's power there. Yeah, be competent in what you do. And then candor, man, that was such a key point. I want to mentor with somebody who's going to give it to me straight. Candidness and, and that ability to have honest conversations was key in good mentorship because great mentors had the ability to create relationships so strong that honesty could exist. That is a key element in this, this paradigm that we saw. The mentors make deposits of trust through caring. We'll jump to this, the, the, the fifth C. They cared. They gave a darn. They connected. They cared about the individual. But because they made the deposits of trust, they were then able to make the withdrawals to have honest conversations, to say, hey, listen, you're doing great, but these are things that need to improve. Or I'm gonna, we're going to have a hard conversation, but I'm in the place of advocacy in your mind so we can, because you know I'm on your team. I'm with you instead of I'm leading you. Does that make sense? It's that different dynamic that was so key. But because of that, they could have the honest conversations. And that person would grow through that experience instead of being offended in that experience or leaving or leaving with bitterness. There was a beautiful relationship of standards and connection that kept that person moving forward. So when you think of somebody in your life, do you have that? Do you have somebody that's confident, credible, competent? You can have an honest conversation with them. You know that they care about you. 
They inspire you to become somebody more. When you're with that person, you go, man, I like myself best. When you have those individuals in your life, you should do whatever it takes to associate with them because it will help you to be a better mentor. And one of the keys there is because you have that type of relationship, it's not that we just keep colleagues with us that are happy to stay. We get the best out of the people that are staying because of that relationship. Exactly. Exactly. Because they see that when they look at you. So we want to find that for ourselves as the leader, but we also need to make sure that we are viewed in that light to those that choose to follow us, because that's why they choose to follow you. That's why they would choose to mentor from you, because you're the person that connects them to their dreams. You're the person that you go, "Mm, yep, okay, you're going to advocate for me, not just tell me what to do. That's the difference. And so something you highlight is the importance of expectations and standards, but mixing with connection and empathy. What does that look like, Clint? So there's two variables. When we looked at an organization, if an employee was satisfied or dissatisfied with their job, there were two variables that we could always narrow this down to. The standards that that leader had and their ability to connect or the lack thereof of all of those things. So based off of those four or those two variables, we were able to identify four different types of managers in every organization. So the first manager that we found was the removed manager. So this manager, they're low on standards and they're low on connection. So this equated to disengagement. They're kind of like in the job, but they're not into the job. Uh, They just, they're just kind of there. They're tired. They should have retired 20 years ago. And they just keep managing. And so the employees become disengaged because they don't feel the love from the manager. They know the manager doesn't care about what time they show up for work. It just creates chaos. It creates a removed workforce. The second manager was the buddy manager. So this manager is low on standards, but they're high on connection. Everybody kind of considered them a buddy. They're a friend. They're a homie. They're they're, uh, they're the, uh, the boss that would go and play Xbox on the weekends with the team. And then Monday morning, they're like, hey, guys, we've got to do better. And everyone's like, dude, I just saved you in Call of Duty on Friday. Like, what? Now you're the manager? <laughs> it didn't work. So it created a sense of entitlement where almost the, the employees became more of the boss than the boss. Mm. And, okay. and, and the third piece, the third manager was the controller. This manager was high on standards, very high standard uh, level, low on connection. This is the manager that has that old control and command model of leadership. Put your head down, go to work. Don't whine. If someone else whines to me today, I'm going to lose it. You want, you want me to love employees? I love employees because I give them a paycheck. Smile. Tomorrow's going to be worse. Like that kind of a mentality. And it created rebellion. Push that. Yeah. yeah these, these are the managers that every day they go head to head with every employee. They walk through the halls and everybody fears them. It's all it's fear-based manipulation. It's I will fire you if you don't do your job. I don't care. You're a number to me. Do what I tell you to do. It's my way or the highway. I'm the boss. But the fourth, man, the fourth, and that was the key. And it was really the precedence and the foundation of the book. It was the first thing that I really noticed in in the lives of these employees. And it was the mentor manager, the manager that was high on standards. They understood that we need a job to get done. We've got expectations. I need you to be safe. I need you to show up on time. There's rules to the job. There's things we need to do that are important within the standards of our company. But then they were also equally as high on connection. They understood that they were a a person to be loved, that people had a life outside of work. They had empathy. They got to the part about people. 
So high on standards, high on connection. And what did this create in the employee experience? Respect, respect. That manager was not always liked, Clint, I will tell you that, but they were respected. And it was a beautiful thing to see how those individuals worked. And it was a fun framework to really help leaders understand and and to kind of evaluate themselves and say, you know, which one are you? (laughs) Are you the removed manager? Are you the buddy? Are you the mentor? Who are you? And and to go, okay, maybe there's some things that I need to change to get to that mentorship position in the eyes of your people. Wow. There's power there to think about for yourself and also who you want to become. And something you mentioned was your drumming. And I want to take a digression to that because one of the things you talked about in the book it reminded me of the drumming story that you shared. And and that was, you talk about the importance of worth through recognition and potential through growth opportunities as two keys for mentoring our colleagues, right? And it tied in to that fifth grade story with your teacher who ended up being partially responsible for you becoming a drummer. Can, can you share that story and how that resonated throughout your life? Yes. And how we can use that in our day-to-day lives as leaders. There's a key component, a powerful component to mentorship. And mentors have the ability to show you who you are. And then they have the ability to show you who you can become. Could you imagine if you had a boss, a manager in the workplace that had the ability to do that? He just showed you who you were and you're enough and you were worth it and you were great and you had talents and skills and strengths and abilities that were just beautiful and unique to you, but also took those straight strengths, talents, and, and then gave you a roadmap of what to become, what you could be. That, that, that's what's winning right now. That's what people are working for. That's what people remember. And for me as a five-year, as a young 10-year-old kid, uh, a, a long time ago, I was the kid that had a hard time in class sitting still. I would just move. I would tap. I still have a hard time sitting still. I would just tap my hand. I tap my feet. I tap my pen, my pencil. And obviously, if you're sitting in a class and someone's clicking a pen or they're tapping their foot, that gets annoying really fast. And I was called the twitcher. I was called the tapper. I was nicknamed. I was bullied. And it wasn't even just by the kids. Even the teachers would constantly tell me, Clint, sit still, sit on your hands, stop tapping, stop moving. I got sent to the principal's office. Principal told me to sit on my hands. I just, I was constantly deemed this problem and it helped me to focus, to be honest. Like I I just, I just moved. I had a lot of energy. And I remember one day my teacher, his name was Mr. Jensen. And he looked at me as I was tapping in his class and he said, Clint, I need you to stay after class. We're going to have a conversation. And I remember thinking, this is it. Like I'm getting kicked out of school as a 10 year old and the bell rings. Everybody leaves. It's a completely empty classroom. And he takes me to the back, sits me down. He said, listen, you're not in trouble, but I do need you to know you're kind of the kid that's on the list. I know you get teased. I know you get bullied. All the other teachers, they talk about you and you just, you move, you tap, you tap in my class. And you tap in everybody else's class. And it is, it's hard to teach. It's hard to, it's hard to, to run a class. It's hard to learn when that's taking place. He said, but I've, I've also watched you though. He said, it's really interesting. He said, you, you'll, you'll, you'll sit back and you'll do an assignment and you'll write with your right hand. And then all of a sudden you'll tap with your left, but then you'll switch the pen and you'll start writing with your left hand and you'll, you'll tap with your right hand. He said, I, I think you're ambidextrous. And I was like, no, I'm Presbyterian. He's like, no, he's like, that's not what it means. No, he said, he said, try this. He said, can you tap your head and rub your belly at the same time? He's like, just try it. 
And so I gave it a go. I could do it. And he goes, now switch it. Can you rub your head and then tap your belly? And literally back and forth without thinking about it, I could do it. And he sat back in his chair. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, I, I don't think you're a problem. I just think you're a drummer. And I'm somebody, Clint, that believes in moments. I wrote about it in the book. Um, because as people reflected on significant workplace moments, significant leaders, they all talked about moments. No, no employee in 10,000 plus that I've interviewed, none of them ever said, you know, I just work here because my boss is so good at time management. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever said, you know, I just work here because man, we just, we increase our quarterly projections year after year and our sales are so great. Nobody said that. Nobody talked about the P&L statement. No, nobody, they don't talk about that. They talked about the moments where the boss was there, where the boss sat down with them, where the boss said, where do you want to go? How can I help you? When the boss said, how's your family? What do you need? When their spouse was sick and they sent flowers or when they had a new baby, they, they supplied six months of diapers. They, they talked about those moments that represented possibility, that represented advocacy. And in this moment, Mr. Jensen, that old teacher, he leaned back in his desk and he opened up the top drawer and he reached inside and he took out my very first pair of drumsticks and he put them in my hands and he said, listen, um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just want you to keep them in your hands as much as you can because I think you're a drummer. And let's just see what happens. And that was 23 years ago. And from that moment on, I have traveled the world uh, throughout my whole life into high school, college, my professional career as a professional drummer. I've been on America's Got Talent, played drums with Carrie Underwood, Tim McGraw. I've coached for the Utah Jazz NBA drumline. I paid for my whole college education through music scholarships. I've been able to do some really, really, really amazing and fun and inspiring and unique things in my life because of one person who saw possibility and opportunity instead of a problem, instead of a disability, instead of the negative. And, and that's the foundation like that, that, that like, man, I had run through walls talking about that stuff. It, it has moved and changed my life. Mentor after mentor, after mentor, after mentor. And it's the reason why I've dedicated my life in helping others to become a Mr. Jensen. That, that's, that's what we remember. If I were to ask you, Clint, right now, to tell me, could you tell me who the last like three NFL MVPs were? Yeah. Or, or tell me who the last, you know, uh, Academy Award winners were for Best Actor. Who were the last three Miss Americas? Like, without Googling that, most people would have no clue. Like, they don't, we don't really know. They had, they're some of the most popular, famous, prestigious, beautiful, elegant, wealthy people in the world. Whatever you want to call that. We, most people would call it success. But then if I were to ask you, Clint, tell me the name of a teacher who made the biggest difference in your life. Yeah. Would you remember their name? Mm-hmm. Most yeah, people most of us do. Yeah. Right, right. Right, right. Or, or tell me the name of somebody in the last month and a half who's been there for you that showed up that made a difference. Or tell me the name of one boss or manager that you just loved. And we instantly remember them. Why? Because they became significant in our lives not just successful. There's kind of like a, the rolling frame of, of a statement of be the leader you wish you had, be the leader you wish you had. And I've always heard that. And I said, no, 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 be, be the mentor you were lucky enough to have. That is a frame of leadership that's powerful. If you've had those Mr. Jensen's in your life, be that. What, what did they do to become so significant in your own life? It, be, it builds a very real, uh, very repeatable, very inspiring framework for you to become that for others as well. Cause I guarantee those, those things that they did can be repeatable. They can be something that you can do in the lives of others. So 
be the Mr. Jensen, be the mentor in the story. And one of the key things for us to be the Mr. Jensen in that story is to really know the people that are working for us. And I thought it was powerful how you wrote, there's no shortcut to knowing your people. Where do you see people trying to take the shortcuts and why doesn't it work? And what do we need to do to create that intimate relationship that allows us to see the potential inside of our people? There's many people in my industry, in the world of professional speakers or leadership gurus or experts or authors that strive to market in a way that that helps people find the silver bullet, that here's the quick hack. Here's the the, the quick thing that's going to change everything, right? If, if you've got millennials working for you, here's the five things that every millennial wants or seven things your millennials are looking for. And if you don't provide, they'll leave. Like th- That's a marketing ploy that gets business owners who are struggling or business leaders to go click or to prescribe or to listen to that. And I think the problem with that is that we end up with a misdiagnosis, a misdiagnosis of a generation, a misdiagnosis of individuals. It is a fallacy in leadership to think that millions and millions of, of we'll call them kids at this point, Gen Z, young people entering the workforce. It is a fallacy to come up with three or four, five, 10, 15 things that every Gen Z employee wants because of the year that they were born in. That is poor leadership. That is poor people management. You cannot do this one size fits all approach. And I know it sounds fun. It sounds different. It's unique. It's like, give me the the secret stuff. But people are people. One thing that we found a lot is, is that companies do surveys. They do onboarding orientation. They do these personality assessments. They use it in their hiring. They use it on, welcome to the company. We're going to give you this test and let's give you a color because then everybody will know your color and then we can know you better. We found that when people did that, they took this quicker approach to try to get to know somebody based off of a a schematic or a number or a color. It created more misdiagnosis than it did in, in, in positive resources. People became confused. People were viewed as a number. You were viewed as an ENFT instead of viewed as Clint mm. or viewed as, as John or viewed as a friend. Or it, they, it, it was a lens that, that created misdiagnosis. And I think leaders sometimes feel like they don't have time to do that. I want to just give you a personality assessment and I want to know if you're the right hire instead of taking the time that it takes to find someone that's going to gel with your, it just takes time. And and I wrote a whole chapter about simplicity and how to keep it simple, how to figure out what not to do, how to create a to don't list, how to free up your time as a leader, because it allows you to connect more. And uh, we've got to get away from the assessments. They can be a tool. Don't get me wrong. There's some benefits there. But nothing compensates for sitting in and flying the airplane. That was the title of that chapter. I was a pilot in a previous life and all planes have manuals. They all have rules and guidelines and things that can help you to understand the plane, but it will never ever substitute for getting in and actually flying the plane. You can read a thousand leadership books. You can send out a million assessments, but it will never replace the power of true, authentic care, genuine connection, and the time that it takes to really get to know individuals. And we've got to do that when we think of the lens of employees and generations. I know a lot of lazy millennials. I know a lot of entitled millennials, but I also know some incredibly loyal millennials, hardworking millennials, millennials that are willing to earn their stripes, millennials that are are gifted 
in communication, but yet it's easy to get on and jump on and read all the negative and entitled generation and millennials don't want, they don't want money. They want purpose. Like that's a lie. <laughs> like millennials <laughs> are learning about a, a word called a mortgage. And I don't know, it's just, <laughs> we've, got, we've got to get away from all of that. Try to stop reading the headlines and start having the conversations with the person. That's how you learn. That's how you connect. So Clint, for those conversations, one of the tools that you recommend is the concept of what you refer to as a status interview. Yes. And so what is the status interview and what are the key... There's three questions you ask in that interview of the people that are on your team. Can you take us through the status interview and how we use that to create that relationship and connection? Yeah. I saw this applied many, many times with great leaders who who helped to, to get the pulse on what was happening in their workforce. Because again, the perception of leadership versus the reality of the employee experience is usually different. So what's the status of an individual? How do we know what they really need? How do we know how to really engage them? How do we know to pull on the heartstrings? How do we know how to really captivate them in their work? I came from the OR, the medical fields in, in another previous life before I did this. And one thing that always in the OR, they would the, the doctors would mention and ask is, can I get a status update? I need a status update. What's going on? What's up with the patient? What's their status? What they're really asking are what are the vital signs of the patient? So their heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, the, those are the things that keep you alive. The vital signs determine the status of a patient. Based off of the status, that's how we would determine how to treat them. Okay. If there's low blood pressure, then we're going to treat that patient for that blood pressure problem. But then you recheck the status. After we've done that, let's recheck the blood pressure to make sure we're level. And then you continue that. You continue that cycle until healthy stability is maintained long-term. So great leaders I saw would continually check the status and they did it by creating what I call the status interview, which consisted of three key questions that are really important to ask right now. And I think as a listener, if you're listening to this show, I would tell you, I challenge you to consider two employees right now, two people that you look over, two people that you're in charge of. Maybe, And I, and I would hope that they would be your rock star employees, two individuals that are just great employees because the chances of them leaving um, can be fairly high, right? We go back to that statistic of over 60% of, of employees are currently looking for a new job right now. And so take a moment, sit down with those individuals. And here's the first step. Start with vocal praise. Sit down with them and say, hey, John, listen, I just need you to know how much you mean to us. I can't do this without you. Uh, everything that you have done in our organization, like we need you. I appreciate you. Like bring on the vocal praise, create an environment that's safe. And then ask them this question, what can I do to keep you here? The second question is what's getting in the way of your success at work? And question number three is what can I do to help you get there? That's it. The unfortunate thing, Clint, is 99.9% .9 of employees are never asked those three questions of their bosses. And the times usually when those questions are asked is in the exit interview <laughs> when, when the employee's already leaving and they're like, what can we do to help you stay? What can we do to be better? And then it dawns on them, man, we should have asked these questions six months ago. And I, I, it's a great way to, again, it's not a quick hack. It's not a survey. It's an honest conversation that again, hopefully you've taken the time to build that trust. You've taken the time to, to create an environment of safety. Hopefully you've gained the right to become the mentor in the story and then ask them. It's so simple, but extremely powerful. Do the status interview. Now, the first thing that's going to jump out at someone is what if I give them the status interview and they tell me they want more money? 
or they want they want a promotion and and how do I deal with that and so I'm, I'm afraid to ask because I don't know what the answer will be and how I'll deal with it what do you tell yeah, them Clint yeah yeah what if they ask for ski passes and you know more Cheetos in the office and we can't do that Here's the thing, if they can't, if you can't give them what they're asking for, look for a variable. So say you can't, you can't give them a 20% increase in pay. Well, maybe there's something else that you could do. Maybe there's another alternative. Maybe we can help with flexibility. Maybe it's an advancement in career. Maybe we can do something that constitutes the increase in pay. Like look for some variables. That's the old, that's the beauty of this is it creates an opportunity to have some dialogue, to create a plan, to create a vision. And if you can't find a variable, then my goodness, at least you asked. At least you asked. I am not putting my head in the sand to, or, or, or thinking that sometimes these conversations, there just is no option. And not every employee is going to stay with you forever in your job. I get that. But again, the goal is if, if we can get an employee to stay with us for three years versus three months, that's a win. And again, as we ask these questions, as we strive to listen, as we strive to hear them, we're creating an opportunity for them to write that story as well. So look for variables. If you can't find a variable, just keep asking. And, and so then let's go sideways because one of the things you talked about was freeing up our time in order to be able to have these important conversations with our colleagues. And what you talked about there, you talked about simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. And keeping our lives as leaders simple so that we have the capacity. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation, the concept of a not to-do list. And then in the book, you also shared four different things we can cut in order to have more time. Can you share with our listeners what some of those ideas are to make their lives simpler so that they can connect with their employees? Yeah. I think the resounding theme, if you were to get a leader, a bunch of leaders in a room for a conference, say a management training meeting, the resounding theme would be as people walk up to each other and said, hey, Phil, how you doing? Hey, Jessica, how you been? Everybody would say, oh, yeah, busy. I'm busy, but we're good. Yeah, things are busy. It's good. How are you doing? No, we're busy. I'm busy. (laughs) It's my my least favorite answer of all time because it has no, it has no impact on how you're, well, sure. Maybe it means you're tired, but it's not actually a doing, right? It's like, I'm not doing anything. Exactly. But we're all so busy. We're all so busy. (laughs) I found that that the great, the great leaders for the most part, most leaders know what they need to do. Most managers, they know the job that needs to be done, but the greatest leaders, man, they knew what they needed to stop. They created boundaries in their lives that allowed them to connect more. And I think the last five years, there's been a big movement in the leadership space of engagement and culture and connection, which is great. I think the next five years, there will be more within the realms of boundaries and figuring out what to stop, how to simplify, how to connect more in a way that allows you to do less as a leader. Because again, we're so busy and the to-do list is so long. And then we wonder why people don't feel seen, heard, or understood. It's because you're so busy doing a million other things. So creating that, that process of, okay, what's the stuff that I need to quit doing? Who are the people that I need to stop associating with? Uh, what are, what's consuming my time? I saw many managers that said, okay, after five o'clock, I'm done. I'm done. Or I saw we had, there was a few different managers that I saw that during their day, they intentionally just carved out free space, free time. Or it was time that this was the moment twice a week that they would walk the halls of the office. They carved out an hour. They said no to a few things so that they could say yes to the stuff that really mattered to their employees. Again, we get in this mode of a business owner or as a leader, 
I've got things I need to do. And what I'm doing is ultimately for the business. But you have to remember every employee is asking you this question. Let me know when it gets to the part about me. And it's key. And some people think that that's like a statement of entitlement. Like, oh, let me know when it gets to the part about me. And all those entitled little shining stars in my life. But it's not. It's not about entitlement. It's about good business. It's about good parenting. It's about good relationships. Everybody is asking that question. Let me know when it gets to the part about me. And when you do that, you create connection and no significant loyalty ever happens without significant connection. And so much of mentorship is spelled in the, in the framework of time. It's spelled in the framework of time. Give them the time to connect. And you can't do that unless you say no to a few things. And that's why I advocate for the power of a to-don't list. Create the to-don't list. What are the things that you can stop doing? What are the boundaries you can put in place? You know, what, what do we do in the morning when we wake up? Most of us grab our phone. It's usually the first thing we do. Or do you create a boundary and turn over to the person next to you and say, hey, good morning. I love you. I, let me know if you need anything today. Most of us hear that and we're like, man, if I did that to my spouse, they would say like, what do you want? What have you done? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> yeah. But again, it's really neat. It's really cool to see. And when you demonstrate that sacrifice of what you're doing so that you can connect and be there for other people, it's a powerful thing. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Sometimes it is in the simple. We have a puppy. I guess she's about nine months old, so still a puppy. And her and I have a routine that before she goes to bed, she flops down right beside me on the bed, goes on her back pushes against me and she's like, all right, give me the rub down before I go to sleep. And then as soon as I stop petting, she gets up, gets off the bed. She's like, I don't sleep with you. I just come for my pets. Yeah. First thing in the morning, she's like, hey, just want to remind you. Yes. Your job is to pet me. Does the exact same routine. And that's her go to bed routine. And her wake up routine is just to say, hey, before you start doing all the other stuff. Yep. Just give me some love. Yep. Yep. And that puppy knows that that puppy's cared for. And it's a moment that also is strengthens your bond with the puppy. Yeah. And, you know, if we can do that with people in the workplace, man, it's amazing what that will do for you. It's amazing the investment and street cred that that will get for you in the lives of other people. Cause you're getting to the part about that puppy. <laughs> we got to get to the part about our people. It's powerful. I love it. Now, one of the things we want to do with our people is we want to increase their sense of ownership. So what does that look like? Why is it beneficial? And how do we differentiate between ownership and responsibility? Yeah, it's a great question. Ownership, I think, is key because it gives them that investment in this is not just a job. This is a movement and I'm a part of it. I'm not just an employee. I'm a team member. I'm an intricate part of the process. So ownership and responsibility is Really, really the responsibility piece would be associated with tasks. These are the things I need you to get done. This is your job description. Ownership is you weigh in on the possibilities of what could be. You weigh in on the destination. You weigh in in how this looks and feels. And when a leader could achieve that dynamic in bringing somebody in and giving them a piece of that. Yeah, it, it mattered to people. People talked about it. People, I, I remember I went in, uh, there was a tire store and they, they talked about, you know, one of the things that, that our manager, we'll call him Phil, would always do is for the interviews, before we bring on a new tire tech, he'd bring us all in to interview the tire techs. Mm. And we got to weigh in on who was a part of our team. Like it's a small, simple thing, but it mattered to the employees. 
that it's not just Phil running the show and we listen to Phil and Phil tells us our responsibilities and what we need to do. No, we actually get to choose how this looks. We get to choose how this operates. And so this can be done in lots of different ways on a grand scale, small, intimate scales, but, but constantly thinking as a leader, how do I help you to feel a sense of ownership? How do I help you? You know, I talk about in the book, my dad, when I was little, he gave me the will of the car. He told me one Sunday to get out of the car, come over here, sat me on his lap, put me on the wheel, said, you drive. And I was like, what? I mean, it, it changed my, my perspective. I'd driven on this road for years, going back and forth to, to the grocery store. And now everything had changed because I was given this sense of ownership. I saw the road differently. I, I paid attention more. I saw street signs that I had never seen before. I was so focused on this yellow line down the middle of the street that I had never really understood or realized. And it, so it increases the investment. It increases the experience. And it's an important thing to think about. It's an important thing to achieve in your mentorship. Give them a sense of ownership. Love it. So the uh, a last question I want to throw at you is with, and we say millennials want more purpose, they want more of this, but let's just assume purpose, passion, and the ability to provide. You talk about those three things. And it was while you were having burgers with a couple of friends mm-hmm. that you had an epiphany about those three things and what people tend to want in life which led you to stop the medical career that you were were pursuing. What was it that you saw and how do we help more people find that? Yeah, there's a quote by Oscar Wilde that changed my life. And the quote is, to live is the rarest thing in the world for most people merely exist. And that is all. Living versus existing. And that quote haunted me throughout my professional career, because I, I found myself in a job where I was just existing. Every day was the rinse and repeat, nine to five, do the same thing day after day. And I just, at that restaurant, I said, guys, wouldn't it be crazy if you could find a job that allowed you to live? And in my opinion, living was, if you found something that allowed you to do what your passions were, pulled on your heartstrings, but also it gave you a sense of purpose, allowed you to do something bigger than yourself. But then also, what if it could provide? financially in a way that was sufficient for you. And both my friends are like, I don't think it exists. <laughs> like, look at most people in their jobs. Like, yeah, the more, they might be making a lot of money, but they're miserable or they're making no money. And yeah, they might have like a fun job, but you know, the, they can't pay the bills or it's not fulfilling or all these variables. And I just said, that can't, that can't be. There's got to be something else. And two weeks after that, I quit my job in the pursuit to live. And the day I quit my job, was the day I started living. And I found in my research, Clint, that most people, when they do quit their job, it's because they want to live in a better way. They want to live a better story. And if we as managers and leaders, if we strive to think, how am I helping my people to live, to live a great story, to live a better life, to not just survive, but to thrive? How can I help them to have passion, purpose, and provide in their work? And when you do that, that, that's really what it came down to. That's how people were were living and thriving in organizations is when organizations understood how to do that, to bring the right people in and then provide the environment where those three Ps could be fulfilled. And what an opportunity. Like every time I talk about that, I'm like, man, as a manager, as a leader, like that's what you do. That's your goal. You want to be the mentor in the story and you help people play to their passions, find a sense of purpose and provide for their lives and their families in a way that's sufficient for them. If you can do that, if we can bring it all, boil it all down to that, that's the heart of what those Mr. Jensen's do. 
and the lives of other people. And that's a beautiful thing to be a part of. That's a significant thing to be a part of. And uh, yeah, no greater call in my opinion. Passion, purpose, and the ability to provide powerful and beautiful way to end that. Clint, is there anything we didn't cover that you want to get out as last thought? One thing that I've always believed in, it's not about being the best in the world. It's about being the best for the world. And at the end of our lives, I don't matter. I don't care what any of us do. None of us are getting out of this life alive. <laughs> really, we'll be surrounded by two things. You're going to be surrounded by the do it, did it, done it, or you're going to be surrounded by the woulda, shoulda, couldas. And it is the things of significance in this world that we remember. It is the moments of advocacy. It is the moments of possibility. Moments are what we cherish. Moments are what we remember. We don't remember days. We remember moments. So strive to create those moments in the lives of other people. Strive to be the best for the world. Don't be the, just the, the best company with the best logo or the best theme or the best quarterly projections. Be the best company for your people. Be the best company for your community. Be the best company for the world. And in doing so, you will live, not just exist. And that story that you live will be full of moments that we will remember and cherish forever. And the world will say, I like myself best because I met you. I was associated with you. That would be my final thought and something that I hope we all strive for. It's beautiful, brother. And where can people find you? Yeah, clintpulver.com is the website. And then uh, they can check out the book. Uh, You can get it on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Also hit me up on social media, all the social media channels. Love to connect with people. Everybody deserves a phone call. So I love it here. How great leaders create organization that people never want to leave. Get it on Amazon. A great read. You heard just a smattering of what's in the book in the conversation, and you'll see more, be more and create moments in people's lives. Thank you, Clint, for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was an honor. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy. Clint Murphy.